Beyond the Paper Gown inspires, informs, and empowers women with the latest information about our health and healthcare choices. Join in for provocative conversations with scientists, clinicians, policymakers, and innovators. Beyond the Paper Gown is hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, internal medicine specialist and women's health advocate. The following information is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. This information is not intended as a substitute for professional therapy or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover. Today's topic is breast cancer. We're going to talk with Dr. Karen Anderson, a scientist and a medical oncologist. We'll touch on new research, genetic testing, screening and diagnosis, and what to do if you do, in fact, receive a diagnosis of breast cancer. According to the World Health Organization, breast cancer became the most common cancer globally as of 2021. In the United States, about one in eight women will develop breast cancer over the course of her lifetime. Given these numbers, most of us will be affected by this disease, whether through a personal diagnosis or with someone we know. Dr. Karen Anderson is a professor at the Biodesign Institute at Arizona State University and an adjunct associate professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic. To start our conversation, I asked her how she decided to be both a clinician and a scientist. Well, I ended up, uh, I did an MD and a PhD um, when I was doing training. So I've trained as a medical oncologist, but I also recognized that if we're going to move the needle on how on cancer care if we're going to really change things we have to do research and the work that i do is translational so it's focused on humans and and the issues with human breast cancer and uh trying to understand you know who's at risk how to treat what are the molecules that are abnormal and what can we do about uh about really changing that we want to change the status quo absolutely and tell us a little bit about your research. I'm an immunologist. I study how the immune system sees cancer and what we can do to sort of ramp that up. Can we tackle cancer in part by harnessing the immune system? And it's been recognized over the last decade, really, across multiple different tumor types is that, yes, we can reactivate the immune system. There is some natural mechanisms by which your immune system is kind of trying to control it and see it. The idea is that the immune system sees the tumor and realizes it's not supposed to be there. It then mounts an immune response to fight it off, just like it would as if it were fighting off a virus. We then talked about the fact that there are certain viruses, such as the human papillomavirus or HPV, for example, that have been associated with cervical and esophageal cancers. And there are vaccines that help fight that virus and thus reduce the risk of those cancers. However, just to be clear, that's not the case in breast cancer. Obviously, some cancers are associated with viruses like cervical cancer and others, but, uh, but breast cancer is not. But the, the changes that happen in the breast cancer, the mutations and the alterations in the proteins make it seem like a foreign body. That's exactly right to the immune system. It's seen as foreign. And there's a whole bunch of mechanisms it uses to, to sort of hide from the own immune system. 
Uh, so we know sometimes if you can activate those T cells, sometimes you can, you can have a response in the tumor. Sometimes you can give vaccines for some types of cancers, not breast cancer yet, although people are working on it, but some therapeutic vaccines in some patients are starting to have uh, evidence of response. So, so certainly T-cell activation has been a cornerstone of therapies across a number of solid tumors. It started in melanoma. We've seen it now in lung cancer. It's had a real impact on how people are getting therapies. We're starting to use less chemotherapy in these settings and more immune therapy. And I think that that trend is going to start happening. And, and we're now just now starting to use some immune therapy in breast cancer as well, but only certain types. It's still early days. We also talked about the impact of COVID and the development of mRNA vaccines. The advantages of mRNA vaccines are that they can be changed easily and are easier to manufacture than other vaccines. But the real advantage in cancer is that they can be personalized for an individual's tumor. If you want to drive an immune response, can you do something that's universal? Well, that's great, but everybody's cancer is different. And certainly for adaptive immunity, like T-cell immunity, that's very precise to a given person's tumor and a given person's host proteins. And so they, there you have to start thinking about personalized therapies. You know, uh, and for that, you need some really flexible ways of, of delivering vaccines or others. And, and these are all still in clinical trials. There's nothing out for patients yet, but, but there are a number of different studies that are sort of working their way down the pike for this. For the benefit of those who haven't had the benefit of an immunology <laughs> class, and I could uh, certainly use a little bit of a refresher, um, <laughs> talk to us a little bit about the difference between a T-cell response and an antibody response or B-cell response. So, you know, the, the key to what we call an adaptive immune response is that it's specific for, for whatever molecule has gone wrong, whether it's a viral one or it's a cancer one, the process is the same. And antibodies recognize things that are outside the cell. So viruses that are floating in your bloodstream, for example. But if you want to recognize the changes that happen inside your cells, uh, that's what the T cells do. And the T cells recognize an altered self versus regular self and tries to kill off the cells that are altered. And they're continually doing this everywhere. It is, is part of they're they're circulating and that's how they train. And adaptive responses have memory. So not only does that immune response see it then, obviously this is the way vaccines work, it is not that you see it then, but then you have a memory response to it, whether that lasts six months or 60 years, depends on how it's exposed and what it is, and a lot of factors we don't really understand yet. But what we're trying to do is to wake up those memory T-cell responses. The immune response varies from individual, and so does your genetic makeup or genome. You probably have heard about the increased risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer associated with BRCA1 and 2 genes, but there is now more evidence that there are other genetic variations that also increase risk. While more information is usually helpful, it can also lead to confusion about what to do if you do find that you have these genetic variations. 
So I think what we've realized over, especially over the last five years or so, what we've known about the, the dominant genes that are associated with high risk of breast cancer, like BRCA1 and 2, we've known about that for quite a long time. But what's really emerged, I would say, over the last five, 10 years, as we do a lot more genetic testing here, is that there's a lot of other risk genes that confer a little bit of risk. Maybe it's a twofold or a threefold risk of breast cancer. Maybe it's one and a half fold, right? So it gives you some additional risk, but not such a, a high driving risk that we need to think about prophylactic mastectomies or other types of surgeries. And part of the challenge we have clinically is, well, what do we do with this? Mm -hmm. what, what do we do for women who have some amount of risk of their breast cancer? Maybe they've got some family history. Maybe they don't. It depends on how old are they and have, do they have a history of breast cancer or do they have one in their families? And I think this is a challenge that's facing women all across the country and across the world who are undergoing these, these complex genetic tests. And and our understanding of a lot of these genes of risk, you know, we used to test for two genes and now we test for 20 or 200 and, and eventually we'll be testing for thousands. So while there are consumer companies that will tell you the basics, you can see it's a lot more complicated. I agree with Dr. Anderson when she recommends working with your physician to determine what genetic testing is appropriate for your needs and to help you make decisions about further testing or even surgery if your results point to an increased risk of cancer. Well, I am a big fan of, of doing this in the context with your physician and your medical care because it's not just about getting a test, but it's also tailoring the test to you and your family and your genetic tree and what you know and also what cancers have run in your families? Because it might be, do we need to include genes for pancreatic cancer, for ovarian cancer, and others, right? Colon cancer. And because some of these cancers tend to run in patterns, you know, that, that it's not just breast cancer, but it might be other types. So we need to make sure that we're testing the right ones, right? There are now these multi-panel tests that we do. And I think it is... There's so much information that a genetic counselor can help with, uh, can guide, and then especially when the results come back, what do you do with it? Does this mean I need additional screening? Do I need MRIs? Do I need contrast mammograms? Do I need regular mammograms, 3D mammograms? Do I need them yearly? Do I need to be seeing a doctor? Do I need to be talking to a surgeon? All of those questions sort of pile together. And, and again, not just about your breast cancer, but also these other cancerous. What does this mean for my risk of melanoma? or my sure. risk of pancreatic cancer, right? And so we used to be able to rely a lot on our family history, but sometimes that's hard. Not everybody knows their, their family's health and their entire family tree of health. And we also have smaller numbers of siblings now. You know, we have smaller nuclear families. So, so some of these traits may not be showing up or, or these risks may not be showing up in your family tree very much. And that's where the genetics really has power. So you're probably wondering right now, should I seek out genetic testing? Well, I think right now it's focused on women, obviously, who've had breast cancer that automatically puts them at a higher risk. And I do recommend it. And certainly for 
depending on how old they are when when they develop their breast cancers for example. meaning if they're younger yeah they if they're younger that that speaks to more of a genetic uh, type of risk um, not always um, I have plenty of women who are young who who have perfectly outstandingly healthy lifestyles and still get breast cancer there's a lot about the the evolution of breast cancer that we still don't fully understand. Um, why do some people get it and some people don't? Uh, but when it comes to average risk without a strong family history right now, routine genetic testing is not yet being performed. And I think part of that is cost and part of that is the implications of what that means for families and, and otherwise. But I think that that as those costs come down, as these tests become more routinely available, I think we'll have some opportunities to be proactive in this and and have really thoughtful genetic analyses, not just for breast cancer, but it might be your cardiovascular risk. And it, it, there's mm-hmm. a host of things. I expect that, that our primary care providers are going to be sort of integrating into our health and in the future. This is going to be part of these discussions. I actually think this is exciting. This gives an opportunity to be able to catch things early because what we didn't have before that we have now is, is we have interventions, right? I mean, there's surgical interventions, there's screening interventions, there's MRI screening, there's more more aggressive, certainly more thoughtful screening processes for, for women, for example, who have higher risk. And that means that we can intervene earlier. And there's starting to be medications that are being looked at for specific and targeted prevention of breast cancer. So can we actually intervene early enough to prevent that? Um, it, it's a great question, but I think it starts with the genetic knowledge. You know, I do encourage women to, to, um, to you know, know about your family history and, you know, talk with your primary uh, care team and say, you know, I've got a couple of aunts with, you know, premenopausal breast cancer. They got it in their 40s. I'm wondering about my risk and starting to have some of those conversations um, and in knowing a little bit about, you know, knowledge is power. Some ethnic groups have an increased risk of breast cancer. For example, you're probably aware that the BRCA genes are more common in Jewish women of Eastern European descent. However, other groups not only have an increased risk of being diagnosed with breast cancer, but also may suffer a more aggressive course due to the type of cancer that they're more susceptible to. For example, women with African-American descent, there is a type of breast cancer like triple negative breast cancer that um, is more frequent in those women. And we don't really understand the mechanisms behind that, but they can be diagnosed. They're more aggressive. They can, they're difficult to diagnose early. They require a fair bit of chemotherapy and, and treatments. And that's a, you know, that, that's an example of how our family trees and our family history uh, can impact our overall risk of certain cancers. Do you feel like physicians know this information? Because I'm not sure, again, it was a while ago, but in medical school, it wasn't something that we talked about a lot. Um, hopefully, that's changing. Absolutely. I, I think the challenge is that it's changing so fast. You know, how do we keep up with this? And some of this 
helps with some national databases and national recommendations. I think as we understand more about the individual genes, you know, we're, we're going to be able to to provide more informed advice and, and help with decision making for women. But it is a really rapidly progressive field. And I think that's where some of these emerging high-risk clinics and the genetic consults and some of the online information that's available for given mutations and given specific alterations, I, I, I think is, is very, um, can be very useful. And, and I, I think we're going to get better at how to convey this. For the most part, for those who have a strong genetic risk, options are somewhat limited and usually involve surgery to remove the breast and ovaries. Dr. Anderson notes that there are studies currently going on that are looking at other preventive interventions, and some of those trials are looking for participants. Well, all of the clinical trials in the United States are uh, listed on clinicaltrials.gov. And so there's one clearinghouse website uh, where all of them, and anybody can go on and search those for clinical trials of relevance to certain things, whether it's prevention or therapy or, or others. However, I will say for most people, it's actually pretty hard to navigate. There's so many different layers of the clinical trial systems. And, and I think that that is sort of best done, at least right now, in the context with your caregiving team. Dr. Anderson's hope is that this process becomes much easier. What I'm looking forward to is, is an easier way for patients to be able to have access to clinical trials, have access to that information, have it be at our fingertips at all times so that the hunt for studies and trials, oh, I, I have a family history. I want to participate in a clinical trial. How do I do that? And that starts you down an, you know, an internet searching and, uh, and hunting path. And, and anything that we can do to make that easier, to make that clearer, to make it simpler, uh, both regionally and targeted for an individual, I, I think will really help us change how we do medical care, certainly in the future. So while you can't pick your parents and thus change your genetics, there are some lifestyle choices that you can make that can lower the risk of breast cancer. Well, you know, there are some very simple ones, right, that, that we've known about for a number of years. So one major risk factor for, for breast cancer is estrogen exposure, and, it's, and that's over a lifetime. And so we've learned that at least the supplementation after menopause or prolonged supplementation beyond five years or more uh, is associated with an increased risk of breast cancer. So that hormone replacement therapy in the short term to mitigate symptoms of menopause, especially Severe symptoms of menopause is one thing, but but persistent and prolonged estrogen um, and progestin delivery after menopause is, is one risk factor. I'm sure people are going to say, what is short term? Is that three months or three years? I think that it's more on the on the several years standpoint. I, I I think you know a six month window or so is is relatively finite, um, but. But especially when you're thinking about a lifetime of estrogen exposure. But the other risk factors, you know, these are things that, that we can control is postmenopausal weight gain, um, is, is Excuse real issue. me. Well, excuse me. You can control <laughs> postmenopausal I don't know if we can gain. address it. I don't know if we can control it. <laughs> I thought you had a secret so, there. No. <laughs> if I did, I'd be retired. 
So postmenopausal weight gain is, is a challenge and it is associated with breast cancer risk. Alcohol intake is also associated with breast cancer risk. There's no safe level of alcohol intake for breast cancer risk. Less is, is more in terms of reducing risk. And that is independent of type of alcohol, for example. Physical activity probably reduces breast cancer risk. So all the things that you're doing for your cardiovascular health will also help in terms of uh, breast cancer risk and probably also to a degree for recurrence risk if you've been diagnosed with breast cancer. Other than the weight gain issue, any foods specifically that tend to lend itself in terms of either prevention or increasing the risk? Well, people talk a lot about um, soy products, for example, because plants have estrogen-like compounds. They're called phytoestrogens. And, and um a diet that is very heavily dependent on soy may contain a significant amount of those estrogen compounds. So, but the data on soy for, for the average person, it, it's very mixed and it doesn't appear to be specifically associated. In fact, some studies show one way or the other for, for breast cancer risk. But I think that, again, the main risk for dietary intake that has been really recognized is alcohol use. So for the vegetarians out there, you may want to pay more attention to your protein sources. But I think that variety, you know, there, there is a role in common sense and in variety of, of, of protein sources. Just it seems to make sense that that would be a wise move, especially as there's more vegetarians and more vegans that are coming, especially in our, uh, in our young, healthy <laughs> women who are teaching us how to, to live healthier lives in many ways. I, I think this is, uh, this actually is going to be very exciting to see how, how those impact uh, the health for those women. Absolutely. And you talked about menopausal hormone therapy, but we didn't talk about um, oral contraception, for example, with estrogens and progestin um, early on. Do those have a role in increasing risk in breast cancer? Well, I think that the the medical benefits, especially depending on the reasons for, for taking the oral contraceptives, I think far outweigh issues in terms of risk. And the estrogen levels that are in these oral contraceptives now are so low. You know, the, the, the hormone replacement levels for these are so much lower than they were when they were first developed, um, you know, when we were young. And so the risks associated with those and the breast cancer risk are certainly, you know, much much lower now. We moved on to a discussion about screening recommendations. Just to be clear, screening does not prevent cancer. The benefit of screening is to pick up cancer at an early stage when it is most treatable and the chances for successful treatment are greatest. There's been a debate between organizations that look at screening about when to start and how often to screen for breast cancer, weighing the risks, benefits, and costs. Currently, the American Cancer Society recommends screening by mammography starting at age 40 for women with an average risk, meaning no genetic or other risk factors, every year until age 45, and then yearly or every other year after that. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force looked at the data and recommends starting annual screening at age 50, though they do state that, and I quote, the decision to start screening mammography in women prior to age 50 years should be an individual one, and in that case, recommend screening every two years between the ages of 40 to 49. 
end quote. And if a woman has a greater than average risk, then screening is recommended at an earlier age. If you're confused, you're not alone. Let me try to explain why there is a difference of opinion. Of course, it's important to catch an early stage breast cancer, but that has to be weighed against a chance that if there are a lot of abnormalities that might be cancer but aren't, and these are known as false positives, there will be a lot of unnecessary biopsies or even surgeries. And what is the risk of radiation and how do we minimize that risk while still finding the cancers at early stages? The idea is to balance these risks with the real benefits of finding true positives. I asked Dr. Anderson for her take. Well, if you look at the data, there is a mortality benefit to starting screening at 40, meaning that women who undergo screening have lower rates of dying than women who uh, don't undergo screening. But it is low. It's finite. It's the benefits are somewhere in the order of one in 1700. Okay. So, so the risk is lower. And I, and I think these recommendations and in, in the differences in the recommendations really reflect that, you know, at what point is, is a low risk still beneficial for, for the general population? And I will say that my recommendations are to undergo start screening at age 40. Because there is this measurable benefit, it's very low, but it's there. And um, younger than that, uh, the screening depends on the family history. Uh, it depends on, you know, did your mother have breast cancer? How old was she when she had it? Is there BRCA1 or 2 genes that are altered in, in the family um, or in the person? You know, there's a lot of factors that go into screening under 40. I think that, um, you know, on the other side of that, when do we stop screening, right? We, we, we don't actually really know. A lot of the recommendations if you notice, they don't address women over 75. And it's not because there's no benefit. It's because we don't know about what the benefit is because a lot of those studies only included women up to a certain age. So, so if you're 80 years old, should you begin undergoing mammography screening? And I think, again, these are good conversations to have with your primary care doctor about, you know, it really depends a lot on somebody's family history and their risk and their overall health and and other types of decisions. It's a very personal decision. Yeah. And, you know, mammography isn't perfect. And you talk about even screening in younger women when breasts are denser. So those mammograms are harder to read. And then there's also now more emphasis on 3D mammography. So does one go in and say, I want a 3D mammogram, whether or not your insurance pays for it is another issue. What's your thought on that? I am a fan of the 3D mammography. I think that it does a very good job uh, for screening. And I think when it is available, it can pick up additional breast cancers. I think that um, we're entering some you know, new emerging technologies. There's contrast mammography and, and obviously there's MRI screening and other types of supplemental screening. And in some places it's, it's ultrasound or other mm-hmm. types of, of screening modalities. And I think that those really end up again being this precision. We're, we're entering this, this field of, of precision screening, you know, so it's not all screening, the same screening for everybody. But I think that uh, the 3D tomosynthesis, the 3D mammograms may or may not be covered, but they certainly are associated with, you know, an increased rates of detection. 
So a woman is screened, other tests are done, maybe a biopsy, for example, and she is told, you have cancer. She comes to you for treatment. How do you counsel your patients? How do you give them hope? How do you quell their anxiety? Well, first of all, you know, majority of breast cancers are curable. Okay, the majority of women who have breast cancer are cured with therapy, and that usually includes surgery. It may or may not include radiation therapy. It may or may not include chemotherapy. It may or may not include anti-estrogen therapy or what we call endocrine therapy. But the vast majority of breast cancers these days are curable. And I think that that is really an important take home. Um, it, it's different than when I started and when many of us started practicing when a lot of these therapies were just starting to get used. And what we find in, in most of the conversations that I have with my patients, it's about reducing the risk of recurrence. When we talk about that. It's not just recurrence. Okay. Does, will the cancer come back in the breast or the lymph nodes? But really, what are the, what's the risk? It's going to come back someplace else in the bones or someplace else. That's the, the risk that we really, really work at trying to reduce because it's really hard to control or, or at least to um, certainly to eradicate cancer once it's spread out beyond the breast and the lymph nodes. This is worth underlining. The majority of breast cancers are curable. In fact, while death rates have been steady in women under 50 since 2007, they have continued to drop in women over 50. The overall death rate from breast cancer decreased by 1% per year from 2013 to 2018. The focus then, once breast cancer is treated, is to reduce the chance of the return of the cancer, either in the same place or in some other part of the body. It may take a multi-pronged approach as well as being personalized for the patient. And there may also be lifestyle changes that can help reduce that recurrence as well. I'm a medical oncologist. I, I treat patients who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. I treat them with medicines. And I work with our surgeons and with our radiation oncology colleagues to try to reduce both the local recurrence risk and that, that distant recurrence risk. But now we have all of these medications. You know, we might have had one or two 20 years ago, and now we've got, you know, 20. But I think what we've, we've gotten much, much better at is tailoring the therapy for the type of breast cancer. We've gotten a lot better at not treating all the time with chemotherapy. So we're much better at, at saying, well, this is this cancer probably only needs anti-estrogen therapy or endocrine therapy. This cancer needs still needs chemotherapy. This cancer might need some immune therapy, you know, in combination with these other things. And so I think we've gotten a lot better at that. I think part of what we haven't what we're still learning about is the health and the lifestyle changes that we can do. How does one change the metabolism, whether it's insulin levels or glucose levels or, or weight or alcohol or all of these other factors that may impact recurrence rate that is much, much harder for us to measure and harder for us to figure out how to do that than giving medications. And, and maybe the next 20 years, that's what we'll figure out a whole lot better. I, at least I hope so. And what about the role of integrative practices, such as acupuncture or yoga or nutrition? 
any data on that and how do you use that in your practice, if at all? So I would say that most of my patients, I will refer to one of the integrative oncologists in our practice, for example. Excuse me. Uh, wait, 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 stop right there. Integrative oncologists. Yes. I love that those two words are together. So say a little bit about that as well. Well, so um, again, it's a big field with a lot of data <laughs> out there. And we have physicians who specialize in integrative medicine and, and in particular for cancer patients. And to talk about, you know, what's benefit of, of one supplement over another? What's the impact of dietary changes? What can we do to help side effects, side effects of therapies, side effects of the cancer, side effects of others? How do we combine all the different medications? Because understand a lot of our patients are also on, might be on statins or might be on blood pressure medicines. And this may not be their only medical issue. And so I think it is important to look at this holistically to not just focus on, you know, like, for example, my practice, we focus on the medications that we need to give in the short term to treat the breast cancer, certainly, and for women who have advanced breast cancer in the long term for treating. But I think that, you know, acupuncture has been shown to improve the side effects of chemotherapy, for example. There is a role for these, certainly in management of symptoms, if not, and also in, in helping to treat the disease. So if one is not lucky enough to be in Scottsdale or Minnesota and have the advantage of being near a Mayo Clinic or another health center, what would you suggest someone who's been diagnosed with cancer do as one of their first steps and how do they access some of these aspects of what we've been talking about? Well, I do think it is important and helpful, especially for women who are uh, more remote, for example, to find support networks and peer support groups, whether that's through the ASCO Foundation, whether that's through American uh, Society of Clinical, see, Oncology. Clinical Oncology. Thank you. Sorry. Whether it's through Komen Foundation and others, there's a number of them that are around to find information and find reliable information online. Most oncologists might know of local support networks also that are available for patients. You know, there might be specific support groups like for a triple negative breast cancer, where the treatments are very specific for that type of breast cancer and some of the issues are there. There might be a young women's coalition to address the needs of younger women with breast cancer who might be also dealing with the simultaneous challenges of early child care and fertility issues and other types of things. You might, they may have unique issues that can be helped and supported through these opportunities. I, I think that it is hard. And I think that for women with, with higher risk breast cancer, second opinions are very common certainly seeking out a second opinion physician to be able to say, you know, yes, I think you're on the right track, or, you know, I might consider adding this or doing this therapy can also be very helpful just to, to know. The problem is when you're diagnosed is that so many things happen so fast, right? Suddenly you're seeing, you're meeting with all these different physicians. You've got a lot of information getting tossed at you. And, and I think it's not really until after you get over that initial, certainly those initial few weeks of where everything is happening all at once, that you're able to really sit down and start to get this information and to gather it and to understand it and be able to make these other decisions. What do you see in the next three to five years that excites you in terms of innovations, either in screening or prevention or treatment? 
I'm excited about a few things. I think that we've had a few major breakthroughs in the last few years when it comes to the treatment of women with certainly with advanced disease. So one of them has been what we call the CDK inhibitors. These are these are target drugs. So these are pills uh, that go after the molecules that are not working correctly in certain types of breast cancers. And that has really, really changed the quality of life um, and the longevity of a lot of our patients with hormone receptor positive or estrogen receptor positive types of breast cancers. So here there are these medications, right, that we now have in use and that 10 years ago we didn't have. And, you know, those came out in 2015. You know, this is pretty new. Mm-hmm. And they've really impacted, I would say, the certainly the quality of life of our patients. And there are all these other ones that are coming down the pipe, right? So to just be able to treat this as a, as a chronic disease and not as a fatal disease, you know, so, so how do we do that? And I think that I would say that immune therapy is still in early stages in breast cancer. It's shown a role in, in triple negative breast cancer in a small subset. Um, I think we've gotten a lot better at treating HER2 breast cancer. There are a lot of HER2 type drugs. That's a type of breast cancer. And so, there's a lot of drugs that target that. But I I think we still have a long way to go. You know, we have a lot of women living in the U.S. dealing with, you know, the treatment and the side effects of the treatments uh, for breast cancer, whether it's early stage or advanced stage. And what we want is the treatments that don't cause side effects. And we sure. want the treatments that are completely, you know, efficacious. And we're getting more precise at that we're chipping away at it, I would say. And then every so often there's a drug that really makes an impact or a whole set of drugs. And I think we'll continue to see this. We're shifting much more to oral medications, you know, so we we don't have women having to tether their lives going in and out of infusion rooms and and treatment facilities, you know, to be able to to spend more time doing what they want to do, you know, at home with their families. Oh, that does sound hopeful. If you were to leave everyone here with one thing that you would like to have them do, or even more than one thing, what would you suggest that they can take action now? I obviously believe in breast cancer screening. I think that is really important. I think one thing we've realized is that with COVID, it's been very difficult for people to undergo screening. Screening has an impact, and I think that that's something we can control and we can control today and really has an impact. So I I think I'll leave us with that. So there you have it. Let's summarize all this good information. We may be able to reduce our risk of breast cancer by our lifestyle choices, healthy diet, exercise, and avoiding alcohol. You can determine your individual risk of breast cancer through genetic testing under the guidance of a physician or genetic counselor especially if you have a family history of breast cancer and other cancers. It's a good starting point for making decisions to prevent breast cancer or at least diagnose at an early stage when it's most curable. Mammography starting at age 40 can identify early stage breast cancer when it can be treated more successfully. And if available, 3D mammography can discover more cancers. And if you are diagnosed with breast cancer, remember, the majority of breast cancers are curable. There are also lots of resources and support groups available and even information on clinical trials. We will have them for you on our website. 
So what one thing will you take from today's episode? Please share it with us. And thanks for joining me. I do hope you'll join us if you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe. For more information on this episode or for additional episodes, links, and comments, find us at beyondthepapergown.com or follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This episode of Beyond the Paper Gown was produced by Patrick Shambayati and Dr. Mitzi Krakow. Until next time, stay healthy and centered.